Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, and joining me today is David Radlow, who wrote a new book, Secret Stories of Leadership, Growth, and Innovation. David's a successful entrepreneur, and he's the former founding partner of what's now a multi-billion dollar food industry. And we're also joined by my esteemed colleague, Andy Pavin. Welcome, guys. This is going to be fun today. Good morning. Delighted to be here, Ann. Well, David, you know, your new book covers a lot of different aspects of the mindset of cartel leadership, market leadership, and disruptive leadership. Can you take us through the differences and why it's important to understand them? Sure. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, the book, Secret Stories, is really a follow-up to the first book of Principles of Cartel Disruption. And we had 11 principles of those on disruption. And on this one, we go through a lot of some great stories on leadership, growth, and innovation. And we end up with the uh, 12th uh, secret and hidden principles of understanding the cartel and market leadership rules. Uh, the importance is that when you start focusing on disruption itself, you're looking at a, a fast growing niche of a very large category. And the focus is on that where the cartel leadership and market leadership is about owning and controlling a market and seeing what you can do to continue to maintain strong leadership and distribution of, of a category, of a country, of a, of a certain area, and to really take disruption head on and look at creative ways so you can command and control an industry and and it's most people have not really ever focused on both of those and try to understand those and that's what i do in my life and there's a lot of excitement uh in this book because it gives you a lot of contact content in context in that it gives you the stories it gives you the actualities it gives you the battles it gives you the the true real life scenarios that you go through and how difficult it can be at times in order to be quite successful. So interesting. I just find the book really fascinating, especially your experience in negotiating the trade agreements with Fidel Castro. What's the one thing that you learned from dealing with the late communist dictator? I'd say the first thing, uh, the, the first thing is definitely how much he relied on, on really customer polls to understand how the people in Cuba were really behaving and what were they thinking and feeling and how that really was ingrained in how he would lead. And really followed up by that is, without a doubt, how much he was willing to go to negotiate a peace deal with the United States, that he would be willing to give up a right of first refusal on all business through all industries with the United States. He'd be willing to settle all claims. And without a doubt, it really, to me, in a personal nature, disproved the idea or the notion that he just wanted the uh, the embargo to go on forever because it helped sustain his power. That clearly was not where his mindset was. 
and you know, th this part of the book is just very interesting and the Fidel Castro stuff, but you have so many more uh, parts of the book that draw on your experience in, in business. And, um, you know, especially the, um, the, the chapters about the current state of the agriculture industry and the things that you had done previous to that. And, you know, it's really been impacted by animal rights activists all over the country. Uh, can you tell us how you sat down with the animal rights groups to bring some consensus on more humane ways of producing food and specifically eggs, which we, you, were, your, you and your company were really involved in? Well, we were we were fortunate to be able to do it to eggs, and then we were able to do it in other uh, the other food categories as well. Uh, the real concept is really that you have common ground. The common ground is that they had a group of customers that they were uh, really advocating for that wanted to be able to go to the supermarket and go to the to uh, the food establishments and and get cage-free eggs, and it wasn't really available, and and it really branched from cage-free eggs to other food that they wanted. So it, it it's a very simple premise that if you have a, pardon me for going back, you have a very large category such as food, and you have a fast-growing opportunity. Uh, in a, in a niche of that industry of being able to produce and deliver food that people want, that's going to be very desirable. And then that's going to grow. And, and that, that was the common ground that we were able to sit down and we were able to break through all the fighting and get down to it and say, okay, fine. You know, let's just put some of this product on the shelf, see if it sells, if it sells great, if it doesn't sell, well, you know, guys, we, we did what you asked us to do and we went out and we produced this stuff and invested in it and it didn't sell. Well, it, it, sold, it sold quite well. And now you've hold, you don't just have cage free, free range, pasture raised. And then in addition to that, you have the whole uh, alternative protein sector, which is just taken off hot as a rocket. Um, yeah, I just want to ask a question about that. I think that's interesting as we've seen, you know, the beyond meat, the impossible burgers, all that stuff. Do you see that category just continuing to explode? And, but they're, they're probably going to come under scrutiny at some point too, for the ways that they, you know, produce, I think that's just my opinion. I, I told them early on, I said, listen, you know, it, it, it's pretty simple. And there were some veggie burgers out there and there were some, uh, there was stuff out there that people would, would consume. And I said, Hey, listen, the stuff tastes like crap and you'll even admit to that. And I, you, you've got to get at the root of having food that tastes good. And if you can have food that tastes good, then you can improve upon it and you can uh, make sure that it's affordable and it delivers the level of protein that you'd like. And you know, that's the starting point. And, and, and they, they kind of got it. At least there's some people in the industry that, you know, they really got it. And they said, oh, yeah, well, that's rational. That's reasonable. And that's, that's how it started. 
it, it started from basic business. Mm -hmm. It started from basic entrepreneurship of right. meeting demand. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, it's like if you have a product, especially a food product, uh, it has to it has to be pleasing and taste good to the people you're delivering it to, or it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's not going to sell. Um, I, I I think that that's interesting as we continue to look at the future on on where that's going. But I think if we kind of like look at something that's happening right here in Massachusetts, wow! Uh, I know you're you're very adept at all of this stuff and understanding this <clears throat> ballot referendum that was. Um, passed five years ago in Massachusetts and looks like an impending crisis about to go into effect this ballot referendum on January 1st, 2022 regarding, um, regarding eggs. And uh, there were reports that if the law is implemented as it's written, it will really wreak havoc on the egg supply here in Massachusetts. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your view is on how that's all going to shake down? Well, it's really, it's been an unfortunate uh, situation. And because you go back to the fact that, that when I was head of the New England Brown Egg Council back in 2009, we sat down with uh, animal rights advocates and we came to a tentative agreement that was similar to uh, agreements in the state of Maine and other places where we would be able to find some common ground in order to settle the matter and avoid a referendum. And the reality is, is that that's when we ran into the politics of, it's like defining moments, so to speak, when the national body politic have come into New England and come into Massachusetts with, with just, with certain allied interest groups, just fighting things at all costs even to cause a referendum and even after a referendum passes to make a few tweaks uh, to improve things. So to a national standard, such as with eggs, and that's where we find ourselves now. We find ourselves basically seven weeks away with having no eggs on the shelf. And if you want to go get eggs, you got to go to New Hampshire. You have to go to Albany. You have to go to, um, Providence or go to Hartford in order to uh, get eggs. Why? Because we have certain allied interest groups that just want to sit there and fight and cause a crisis because they feel that's in their best interest to have a crisis uh, and not resolve things rather than simply resolving things for the common interest of all. There was a referendum in Massachusetts five years ago that I assume was well-intentioned, and it was intended to create a more humane environment for animals raised uh, for food, whether, you know, whether, it's, whether it's pigs or, or chickens, for instance. That law apparently is going to perhaps empty the shelves of eggs in Massachusetts can you, I could try to explain that to our listeners, but can you take a shot at that? Um, and then what I'm interested in is that, you, that what you said is you were able to negotiate similar conditions in other New England states without the need to go to a ballot referendum. And one presumes that their economies are 
moving smoothly and the hens are being treated humanely. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. We were able to work with uh, the Maine Farm Bureau and along with the Humane Society of the United States in Maine and come to uh, a solution and come to an accommodation and avoided a referendum in Maine, where while in Massachusetts, we we're faced with really that, you know, Massachusetts Farm Bureau for their purposes, which they can explain themselves, have decided that, you know, they're going to oppose, they oppose um, settling before, they oppose the referendum, and now they oppose any really deviation to the uh, egg language of 1.5 square feet per hen, even though uh, the main society of the United States and the Massachusetts Society for Prevention of Cruelty of Animals uh, has stood behind the national standard with, with improvements. In other words, we've had improvements so we can have 1.0 square feet of space per hen housed. And that is a national standard that's going to be going through the whole United States. And, and it puts Massachusetts out of the mainstream and it puts Massachusetts, frankly, with the inability to attain uh, product after January 1st, 2022. And why would the Mass Farm Bureau, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I understand that you are not the Mass Farm Bureau, but no. why would the Mass Farm Bureau take a position that could result in shortages on the shelves in Massachusetts? I don't get it. Well, it's really, although it's a, it's a question to be asked in the Mass Farm Bureau based, you know, frankly, when you take a look at, and I'll answer that in general, that they have some constituents that, you know, perhaps would be able to pack 1% of the entire egg supply, which is actually packed in Massachusetts, and 99% of it comes from out. So if you look at it from uh, that angle, you can say that, that all the producers in Massachusetts would be able to sell their product. And probably if there was a shortage, maybe they could get, you know, perhaps economically benefit a little more from it. So it's, it's, it's an understanding of their position based upon who their members are, why they'd want to advocate or not advocate. And, and I'm trying to be as generous as I can in this situation. Yeah, but it sounds like their members, so their Mass Farm Bureau members would be well positioned because they would sell all of their product because all of their product represents about as you said, 1% of the total market for eggs in Massachusetts. Right. And yeah, if there's a shortage, then the Mass Farm Bureau members will be able to sell their products at a premium, I assume. Yeah, that That's the way it looks like. It's, right. it's projected. And at the same time, the statements have been put out, which are, are in the book that, you know, that the Massachusetts Farm Bureau... Uh, opposed the uh, referendum and it's inappropriate to um, it's inappropriate to change a law until you know it's reared its head so to speak until it actually so we should, gets we should wait for the crisis to, to we should wait for the crisis and then address the crisis essentially 
Yeah, a, a correct. Correct. That is, that I guess is, you know, a rationale that, you know, that's, that's in uh, the book and you can read about that in the book. And I would think I, I'm, I'm extrapolating here a bit, but that would be how a cartel would function, right? Control well, the supply. It, it, you know, it's more like tactics and, and things like that. When I, you know, when you, when you take a look at it, you say to yourself, you know, what are the rules that overall industry goes by? Okay. Or, you know, what ways? So it's not like everything is included. So, so to speak, but, you know, in this situation, yes, I mean, you're, you're in a situation where it's let's fight everything, mm -hmm. you know, let's, that's like the slippery slope doctrine. We're going to fight everything because even if this situation is it may be acceptable, then as soon as we solve this situation, another situation is going to be more onerous that pops up. So if we fight everything and fight everything to the bitter end, then we're going to be better off. And a lot of people subscribe to that mm -hmm. to say we're going to we're going to hunker down and we're going to fight and we're going to fight for our interest. And we're not going to compromise. And, you know, that's just, just the way it's going to be. Hmm. And it makes, you know, us people that lived in New England, and especially those that have been in town meeting, and just realize that, you know, at 1130 at night, you want to get home to your family. <laughs> let's settle this thing. You know, let's not drag it out. So we have to deal with this and spend a lot more time on this thing than necessary. And then, you know, we'll deal with the next issue that comes up and deal with it. And hopefully we'll come back and we'll, we'll settle on that one as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it, it's like, it's like understanding a mentality. Mm -hmm. and I was like the difference of a mentality. Yeah, one thing that really impressed me, and I should say that, um, you know, we worked, we worked with you, um, a number of years ago uh, when you were engaged on some of these issues. And I remember one thing that very much impressed me, and I'd love you to talk about it, which is that at that time, and maybe still, the industry saw humane activists or animal rights activists as the enemy, essentially. Um, and what I remember was you were able to sit down and have conversations and come to understandings and agreements, as you said, not in Massachusetts, unfortunately. But as I read the book, that approach informs how you approach business in general. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, both both through the, you know, using the specifics of your experience in Northern New England states, but kind of more broadly, because it does seem to me an important element of your book. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you take a look at this thing and whether or not you're talking about on the big picture, which I go through in the first four chapters on constructive engagement and how you can really get along and learn and, and bring a lot of good from being able to deal with your enemy. And that would even include people that are enemies in the United States. You can sit down with them. You know, you could probably learn a little bit more. You know, there are causes that people can agree to and whether or not it's um, 
feeding poor people and whether or not it's supporting the uh, holiday display with the State Department. By sitting down and being able to negotiate, and you can really get to the point where you can find common interest. And that's the same thing as right at home, where you can sit down with the Humane Society and, and bring about common interest, and which I'm for. You know, and I'm not someone that's going to say, at all costs, let's dig in and fight it out and put our head in the sand and not, and not just be affected by, by your, your local strong or not so local strong insular interests. And it takes leadership to be able to bridge and come out from just being able to focus in on a specific uh, interest. It's a lot easier to say, you know, let's just screw them. Let's not do business with them. Let's not sit down mm -hmm. or, you know, let's just continue to fight because that's what we need to do. We need to continue to fight. It's interesting. You know, years and years ago, I worked for late Senator Paul Songus and Senator Songus used to talk about the Middle East situation, right? The, here we have world politics, not, not local eggs. But one of the things that he that used to that he used to that used to frustrate him was his belief that if parties in the Middle East could create commercial relationships between them, it would give them a reason to talk to each other. And perhaps by starting through commerce, you could get to a point where you could actually have broader conversations. And I wonder if you that that, that sounds like it fits um, your business philosophy in a way. It, it, it certainly, certainly works that way. And, and, and I take a look at it because when I was in Cuba, there wasn't a lot of talking going on constructively, that is between the United States and, and Cuba. So there were things by us being able to do business with Castro and Cuba that we could get done. We can get U.S. citizens held prisoners and uh, the dissidents to help get them freed. Why? Because we had a relationship and we could. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is always opportunities out there where you can do good. And business people have such a unique opportunity and really an obligation to do good and to help the world and to actually jump in and get engaged. Well, I think, David, you and Andy raised a lot of so interesting uh, issues that are in the book. And the purpose of today is we want to give people, uh, you know, a little bit of taste of that, what the book is all about and, you know, and encourage them to read because I just think it's very apropos of a lot of things going on in our society today from uh, whether it be, you know, public policy or things happening in business. So um, I just wanted to um, thank you both for your time, for joining me today. And, you know, the book, Secret Stories of Leadership, Growth and Innovation, it's coming out soon. It'll be available on amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com or wherever you get your books. And, you know, for more information on David, you can go to davidradlow.com. So thanks guys. Thank you. And I should say we were lucky enough to get early copies of the book. It's a great read. 
So. And you know what? We'll see you next time on OA on Air. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.